Good evening, church. It is a joy to be here with you tonight. Would you please open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Today we're going to be going through 18 through 35. Um, It is a lengthy bit of text, so bear with me as we get through this. But last night as I was um, doing my practice run, as I was going through my notes, the earthquake happened, right, close to midnight. And in the words of Michael Scott, I am not superstitious, maybe a little stitious, but I guess we'll see as we go now. If we have another earthquake, we'll know. God did not want me to preach this text. But um, here we are, Luke 7, 18 through 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. He answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather like this and, and hear this story. To have this moment preserved for us as we consider John the Baptist, as we consider what he was dealing with, and as we consider your kingdom. So Lord, be with us tonight. Work in me and through me. Lord, speak to us tonight. We would love to hear from you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So about six months ago, six six months or so, I was listening to a podcast. And one of the men stated something in their discussion that really stuck out to me. 
And this was a pretty superficial discussion. There was nothing really deep going on. One of my few hobbies is I love watches, and I was listening to two dudes talk about watches. Um, and within here, one of them nonchalantly expresses this phrase. He says, expectation is the thief of joy. Expectation is the thief of joy. Now, that's a loaded statement, especially when we're talking about just wristwatches. And immediately, this statement resonated with me. Uh, in my head, I affirmed it. I was like, expectations the thief of joy. Amen, brother. The pessimist in me was all about it. My brain interpreted it immediately as expect nothing and you'll never be disappointed. Expect too much and you'll definitely not be happy. You'll always be disappointed. Expectation is the thief of joy. The problem is that we always have expectations. There is no avoiding them. We have expectations of what our, our, what our lives will look like or what they should look like. Whether it's our walk with the Lord, marriage, relationships, work, what our dinner is going to taste like that evening, we all have expectations. They're always there. And whether we consciously acknowledge it or not, met or unmet, unmet, or unmet expectations affect us emotionally. Unmet expectations can lead to relationship problems. They can lead to fights arguments with friends and family, spouses, frustrations at work, even a disappointing meal. Think back to what not long ago in January, we were celebrating my wife's birthday and we went out to Montelani to have ourselves a nice dinner and we had a certain expectation of how this dinner was going to turn out, how good the food was going to be. And it was unmet. We had a pretty rough time and it was definitely the thief of our joy. Um, but in our text this evening, there is much discussion about expectations, specifically expectations related to Jesus. There are the expectations of John the Baptist, the expectations of the public at large, and the expectations of the religious leaders. We begin in verse 18. Luke writes that the disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord. This story is also told in Matthew, in chapter 11. And Matthew gives us a little more context to the situation. He says that John is in prison at this time. He has been arrested for calling Herod out on his sin. And soon after, we read in Matthew chapter 18, that John will be executed while in custody. So John is in prison, whether he is aware of it or not, death is at his door. But as we see here, that even in prison, John was keeping tabs on Jesus' ministry. He has, has, he has his disciples watching and listening. He's staying in the know regarding Jesus and what's going on. And so Luke tells us that the disciples of John report all these things to him. Undoubtedly, he has in mind all the miracles, all the amazing things that Jesus is doing, the things he is teaching. Definitely the story that we, we looked at last week with Uncle Jay preaching about the resurrection of the man in Nain. And how the people responded, how they said, we have been visited by a prophet. God has visited us. And how they glorified God. And this news was spreading. And John, sitting in his prison cell, hears this news as well. And we read, John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, for you, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? John has heard the information. He has heard the teachings. He's heard of the miracles. He's aware that things are happening. Something is going on with and around this Jesus. 
But we see that John sends disciples and he has them ask a question outright. There is no assumption. There's no beating around a bush. There is a direct question. They ask Jesus plainly, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus, are you the promised Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Or should we not waste our time with you? Should we seek another? Should we look for someone else? The question is straightforward. Like I said, there is no beating around the bush. They get straight to the point. Are you the Messiah or are you not? And before we get to Jesus' answer, it's interesting for us to consider why John is even asking this question in the first place. I mean, if anyone here should know, shouldn't it be John? Doesn't he know? He had God himself reveal something to him. Think about when this story is happening. This is after the baptism of Jesus. And John, in his account of the gospel, tells us of the baptism of Jesus. And he says in chapter 1, The next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John says, And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. That passage is a quotation of John the Baptist. It's explaining that he affirmed and believed in who Jesus was. That Jesus was, in fact, the one who was sent by God from God, and it is, in fact, the Son of God. John saw and bore witness about Jesus as the one. So why is he asking again? What's going on? There's plenty of reasons that could be the case. Um, Going through commentaries, there's a list of potential things that it might be that John is doing here. But there's two that I want to focus on, two specific things that could be the case. I think one is more likely than the other, um, but I think both are helpful for us to consider. Both highlight John's expectation of the Messiah and the fact that the reality he was experiencing was not lining up with those expectations. In a sense, John had expectations of the Messiah and those unmet expectations were the thief of his joy. One explanation that I read in the commentary is that John was not asking for the answer itself. John already knew. He wasn't asking because he wasn't sure about Jesus as the Messiah. Like we've, like we've already seen, he heard from God. He saw a vision. But he's asking because he wants Jesus to get moving with it. What's taking so long? Come on, let's get the ball rolling. He wanted more than healings and teaching. He wanted action. He himself has said that Messiah was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire and that he was going to come and bring judgment upon God's enemies. But here Jesus is teaching in small and insignificant towns. He's giving uh, sight to the blind, healing the sick, raising the dead, all good things. But when is this judgment and baptism by fire coming? John had certain expectations of who this Messiah would be, what he would do, how he would act what the arrival of the kingdom of God was going to look like. And it seems that maybe Jesus is not living up to those expectations. 
John knows who Jesus is, but maybe he's growing impatient. Come on, let's go. Let's move with it. The other explanation that I've seen in some of the commentaries, and one that I think is more likely, it's a little more simple. I think it's a little more easily derived from the text, and that it might be that John is just struggling with doubt. He sits in prison, awaiting potential death. And without question, he is battling all sorts of thoughts. All sorts of things are going on. To this point, he has been faithful to God's calling in his life. He has fought the good fight. He has courageously and emphatically preached God's word. And even when it rubbed people the wrong way, even when it was dangerous, even when it risked his life, even when it caused drama, even when it imprisoned him. With his life, John the Baptist exemplified what it looked like to lose his life for the sake of the kingdom. John gave up all to serve God faithfully. He endured and suffered much as a result. And I'm sure that as he sits in his prison cell, as he waits for either release or death, doubt begins to creep in. John is human. He is not some supernatural being without, without the human mind that we all deal with. Doubt may creep, creep in. Again, he has expectations. He thought Jesus could be the one. But Jesus isn't acting like the one that John was expecting. The expectations he had don't match up with the reality he's experiencing. He had faith in God's calling for his life, but maybe at this time he sits there and looks at the results. He sits and analyzes his situation. He looks at Jesus, and though he had God himself reveal this truth, he heard from God himself say that this is his son. Maybe he begins to question. Maybe that phrase that the serpent spoke to Eve in the garden haunts John here in prison. Did God actually say? Did God actually say that this man is the one? Isn't the Messiah supposed to bring judgment on the enemies of God and liberation of his people? Isn't he supposed to be our king and ruler? Isn't he supposed to inaugurate a new age and a new kingdom that lasts forever? Did God actually say that this Jesus is the son of God? Yeah, he seems like a good teacher. Yeah, he has incredible giftings. Yeah, he heals, he restores life. He does incredible things. But is he the Messiah? John sees and hears what's going on with Jesus, what's going on around Jesus, and John wants to know, is he the one? Or should he turn his attention elsewhere? Has he wasted his time here with Jesus? Before we get to Jesus' response, before we move on in our text and see how Jesus answers John's question, I want us to consider the times we've thought like this. Whether John is just being impatient and wants Jesus to get moving and act like the Messiah he expects him to be, or whether John is struggling with doubt and assurance, I think we could all think back to the times that we responded to our unmet expectations this way with either frustration and impatience, or we've responded to unmet expectations with doubt. Undoubtedly, we've all had expectations of how God was going to be working in our lives. Expectations of how God was going to answer certain prayers, how he was going to act and deliver on certain promises. We've all had unmet expectations when it comes to our lives and our relationship with the Lord. We've all been like John here questioning God about what is going on, wondering why he hasn't delivered the way we thought he would, frustrated that he isn't responding when or how we had hoped, or maybe we're in despair, 
having a crisis in our faith. Life has been hard. Things seem to get worse and worse. There is no reprieve. Things just get more difficult. I put my trust in God, but nothing has changed. Life has not gotten any easier. easier. I struggle daily, and I wonder if he even cares. Is he really the God that saves? Does he really care about someone like me? Does he even hear my prayers? Am I wasting my time? Maybe I should look for another. Maybe I should find another source to focus my time and attention to. We've all experienced moments like this. I think it would be foolish for us to say that as Christians, we never go through seasons like this. We, here we see that John, a man who heard the voice of God clear as day, saw the vision of the dove descending on Jesus. God revealed to John who Jesus was, and even he had moments like this. I think there's encouragement for us there. Even John. Jesus is going to say that John is the greatest of men born to woman. Even he had rough days. Even he struggled. Even he had found himself questioning the plan of God here. As we get into the way that Jesus answers him, we see that Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't put him down. He doesn't condemn him for his impatience or doubt, whichever one it is. Jesus doesn't say, what are you doing? You should know this. Come on, what's your problem? Instead, Jesus answers in this way. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Luke says that when the disciples of John come to ask this question, when they arrive to speak with Jesus, Luke gives us some additional context of what's going on. He says that in that hour, Jesus had already healed many people with diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. So when the disciples of John come and ask this important question, Luke tells us that these miracles are happening around them. They arrive to have this talk, and they themselves are witnesses to the work that Jesus is doing. They are themselves witnesses to all sorts of healings, physically and spiritually. And Luke tells us that Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, does not give them the kind of answer that they might have hoped for or expected. Jesus does not say yes or no. He tells them, look around. See what's happening. See what's actually going on. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. He tells them, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. In very typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't answer their question directly. He doesn't give a yes or no. He doesn't even remind John of what he's already seen. He doesn't say, hey, John, remember, remember my baptism? Remember what you saw? Remember what God told you? No. In fact, he probably here doesn't tell John anything that he isn't already aware of himself. Our passage began with Luke saying that the disciples of John saw and heard what Jesus was doing, and they went and told John. That's why this conversation is happening in the first place. John already knows that the blind are receiving their sight. He already knows that the lame are walking, that lepers are cleansed, that the deaf now hear. 
that the dead are being raised, that Jesus is going around traveling and preaching and teaching. He has already heard about these things. So why is Jesus repeating this? Why is he telling him these things that he's already heard? In a simple sense, I think Jesus is just telling John that he already knows the answer. He already has the information he needs. God has already revealed this to him. And again, I don't think Jesus is doing this in a condemning or condescending way. Instead, it just seems that Jesus is affirming the truth that's already been revealed to John, and he's encouraging him. He's reminding him. He reiterates the things that are happening, and it's interesting to note the miracles that Jesus actually mentions here. He kind of covers a wide variety of them, but I think he says certain things specifically for a reason. He says, The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, poor have, the poor have good news preached to them. And while Jesus here isn't actually quoting the Old Testament like he does sometimes. Sometimes he will quote the Old Testament in prophecy and prophecy to make a point. Here he's not quoting it, but I think the way he phrases his answer brings our attention to the Old Testament. I think he's doing it on purpose. In Isaiah 35, we read the following regarding the promised Messiah. This is one of those texts that is considered an Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah. And this is a passage John would have known. In verse 4, we, we read, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The waters break forth in wilderness, and streams in the desert. Another passage that he might have in mind is actually the passage that Uncle Craig just read. I was unsure about how I felt about including these passages, or my reaching a little bit, but hearing Uncle Craig read it just now for the call to worship just affirmed that, no, I think God wants us to think of these passages, and I think he wanted John to think of this passage. I'm going to reread 61.1. Right? This is a passage that's titled, The Year of the Lord's Favor. Specifically, it is a promise of the coming Messiah when God will show his favor to his people. And in verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Like I said, Jesus isn't actually quoting these verses, but the way he phrases his answer, I think, points John's attention to these passages and points our attention to these passages. In Isaiah, we have the promise in 35 that the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And Jesus says, now the blind see their eyes are, in fact, being opened. In Isaiah 35, we see that the ears of the deaf will be unstopped when this Messiah comes. And Jesus says, the deaf now hear. In Isaiah 35, it says, when the, when the Messiah comes, the lame man shall leap like a deer. And Jesus tells John, Right now, there are those who could not walk or freely using their legs. And then in, John, and in Isaiah 61, it says that the Messiah is going to come and the poor will have good news preached to them. And Jesus tells John, the poor are right now having good news preached to them. Again, Jesus is not rebuking John for his question. 
Instead, it seems he's encouraging John and he's pointing him to the word of God, the promises of God. And I might be reading into this a little here, like I said. Maybe I'm over-spiritualizing this. But if, in fact, Jesus wants John to look at Isaiah 35 and 61 and reflect on the promises of God and see how they are applying to the current reality he is living, I think it's important for us to look back again at Isaiah 35 and see how that passage starts in verse 4. It says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. And whether John at this moment is experiencing frustration and impatience, or whether he is struggling with doubt, I think without question he definitely has an anxious heart. This question wouldn't come up without that anxious heart. And when Jesus tells him to reflect on what he has seen and heard, to reflect on what is actually happening, it's as if he answers John in the midst of all of it. He addresses that question. He addresses that anxious heart and says, Be strong, fear not. Look at what God has promised. Look and see what is going on. Be strong and fear not. Rather, instead, be encouraged. And we've all had moments like John. If we're honest with ourselves. We've all been there. We've all had times of impatience with, with the Lord. We've all struggled with doubt. And I think the way that Jesus answers John here is something that can encourage us, can remind us. Jesus does not say that John needs additional special revelation. He doesn't need to perform some spiritual rituals or deeds to solve a riddle and figure out the clues. But instead, Jesus encourages him and reminds him of the promises of God. He draws his attention to the word that's already been provided. He encourages him and says that even though you might have expected something different, look at how God right now at this moment is delivering on his promises. And this is a call for us in the midst of our struggles and our faith in our frustrations and doubt, to be strong and fear not. To look to God, to look to his word, to reflect on his promises and be reminded of how he had already come through on those promises. That he is the same God today as he was then. That we have his word, we have his promises written, saved, preserved for us to reflect on. Jesus tells the disciples of John to look around at all that's going on. You see the evidence for yourselves. This is answer enough. But he caps off his answer with a very interesting statement. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It seems a little out of place, doesn't it? Like we're talking about miracles, deeds, we're talking about the promises of God the things that are going on that should confirm in John's mind that he's in fact the Messiah. So why does Jesus want the disciples of John to pass on this final statement? Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And I think this again brings us back to how expectations can affect us. Especially when our expectations are unfulfilled or unmet. If expectation is the thief of joy, I think here Jesus is saying... Don't let it be. Don't let your unmet expectations of Jesus and God rob you of the joy that is to be had in Christ. And the question is, why would John or anyone for that matter be offended by Jesus? In the context of our passage, I think that those who are offended by Jesus are offended because he does not live up or match up to the expectations they had. 
whether it's the religious leaders, the public that's listening, or John himself, those who were offended by John or by Jesus rejected him on the basis that he couldn't be the Messiah because he didn't match up to what they expected. They had certain ideas, expectations of this Messiah, and Jesus wasn't that. He was contrary to that in a lot of ways, and it was offensive. To some, he was not holy enough. To the religious leaders, he over and over broke the Sabbath, profaned it, broke tradition and man-made laws. And to others, he wasn't enough of a revolutionary. The Messiah was to liberate them from the nation of Rome, from the oppression and tyranny that they were living under. But Jesus doesn't come to do anything of the sort. He carries no weapon, he has no army, and he starts no insurrection. He did not live up to the expectations many had for the Messiah, and they found it offensive that he would claim to be the Messiah while not doing what they want him to do. They they rejected him and robbed them of the blessedness and joy that Jesus was bringing. Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And again, that reality remains true for us today. We live in a culture that is hypersensitive about offending people. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes we realize how offensive we could be. Other times people are going crazy with it, right? We're screening books, movies, old songs because of something that could be potentially deemed offensive. School curriculums are being changed because of things that might be offensive in an old book. But the Jesus of the Bible is offensive to those who hate God. He is. He's offensive to our secular and self-centered culture. He is offensive not because he was arrogant, not because he was hateful, not because he mocks and oppresses. He is offensive because he is holy. He is offensive because, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, that Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. He was not the Messiah that society expects or even wants from their, he was not what the society expects or even wanted from their king and Messiah. And if we're honest with ourselves, even as believers, he can sometimes be offensive to us. Sometimes we don't want the whole Jesus. We want bits and pieces. We want the Jesus who tells us not to judge, but not the one who calls us to live in holiness. We want the Jesus who tells us to rest in him, but not the one who tells us to pick our cross and follow him daily. We want the Jesus who loves us unconditionally, regardless of who we are or what we've done, but not the one who tells us to love others that way. We want and expect Jesus to exist in our lives on our own terms, to live by our expectations. But Jesus tells John, and he tells us that when I don't live up to your expectations, do not be offended. Don't let your false expectations of Jesus rob you of your joy in him. And so Jesus answers the disciples of John, and they go on their way to pass on his answer. And Jesus now turns to the crowds that are following him and listening, and he begins to talk to them about John the Baptist. And if you're keeping track of time, you're wondering, oh boy, we've only gone through the first five verses of almost 20, and we've been going for a while. Um, Are we going to be here all night? I'm sure you know. The next section goes a lot quicker. 
Um, but I just think that first five verses had a lot of application for us today. It had a lot that we could focus on. And while there is good things in the rest of this passage, things that we could preach whole sermons on, I wanted to dedicate the majority of the time to those first five because of what they meant for us practically. But starting in verse 24, we read, When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. And when did, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus now turns to the crowd and he asks a series of rhetorical questions regarding John. He says, what would possess you to do such a thing? Why did you go out in the wilderness to see John? Why would you leave the comfort of your home, the normal, busy city life that you lived? Why would you go out into the wilderness to see John? Was it to see a reed shaken by the wind? Just a common plant out there blowing to and fro in the wind? Was it to see a man dressed in soft clothing, living in luxury? And the answer to these questions is an obvious no. They didn't go into the wilderness to see the common desert plant. They did not go to see a wealthy man living in luxury. But these questions point to us that John was not common. He was not some wealthy dude living in luxury, and he was not just like the common plant that was being swayed back and forth by the wind. He was not weak and flimsy. He was not soft, rich, and comfortable. On the contrary, John was abrasive. He was harsh. He ate weird food. He dressed funny. He was far from luxurious. The answer to these questions is no. And Jesus continues saying, what then did you go out to see? It wasn't to see those things, because we know that's not what John was. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus states that the reason that people flocked to John, the reason people were coming by the thousands, is because they recognized his importance, his significance. They recognized that he was from God, that he was a special teacher, that he was a prophet. But Jesus elaborates. John wasn't just any prophet. He wasn't just any messenger. Jesus quotes Malachi 3.1 and validates John as the one who was sent by God to prepare the way of the Messiah. And in doing so, he also validates himself as the Messiah. But Jesus says John was special. Because I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he Jesus says that born of women, there is none greater. John was the cream of the crop. He was special. He was not just any prophet. He was the greatest of prophets. He had the special task of being the forerunner to Jesus. He was the one who had the privilege of paving the way for the Messiah. But John says that the kingdom of God values people on different terms. As great as John was, though he was a great prophet, the greatest of men, in regards to the kingdom, the lowest of the low was still greater than John. 
How is this? What does Jesus mean by this? How can the lowest of the low, the least significant person in the kingdom, be greater than one of the most important and significant men in history? There's this concept in, in, in just in theology in the Bible, as we look at the history of the Bible, that John is in a long line of prophets who looked forward to the coming of Christ. They belonged to what's called the time of promise. They looked forward. But Jesus' coming was a dividing line. Jesus belonged, or he and all that came before John, right, before Jesus, were those that belonged to the time of promise. And when Jesus comes, he inaugurates a new kingdom and begins what's called the time of fulfillment. Those who belong to the kingdom are greater than John, not because they are more special than him, not because they do greater things, because they are more significant. They are more significant and greater in the kingdom because they belong to the time of fulfillment. They belong to the realization of the promises of God. They get to experience the full expression of what God promised and is now delivering in Jesus. And Jesus says this not to minimize John. He's not belittling him, but he st- instead he puts John in perspective. John was special. His baptism was important, but something greater than John is here. And belonging to the kingdom is far more important than being baptized by John. As important as that was, as significant as that was, following Jesus is more important. There's something said to be here too about celebrity culture. Right? Even John, the greatest of men, is lower than the least in the kingdom of God. In our society today, we love celebrities. We make celebrities out of everything, whether it's musicians, movie stars, politicians. We even do it with pastors and worship leaders. We do it with significant teachers in the church. Often we could lift them up and make idols of them. We care more about them than we do about the average Joe in church, the lowest of the low. But Jesus says that God doesn't look at the body of Christ that way. As significant as many teachers are, as significant as the pastor is, God cares significantly more about every single one of us. He cares about us. He knows us by name. He does not love one more than the other. There is no pedestal that we as Christians line up on. There is no first, second, third. But God cares about the least of us. Luke tells us the following. That when all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, right, the lowest of the low in this culture, The tax collectors, too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Again, Jesus was not critiquing John and his ministry. Instead, he was confirming its importance and legitimacy. And the crowds listening to Jesus, the lowest of the low, they recognized this and they understood this and they respond and worship God. They declare God just. They see the wisdom of God in this. And Jesus pits the submissive, 
humble acceptance of the common people, the lowest of the low, the tax collectors. He pits them versus the stubborn arrogance of the religious leaders. He says that the common people, the lowest of the low, they declared God just. They accepted the purpose of God for them in their lives. They saw the wisdom of God in John and in Jesus. But the religious leaders, they rejected the purpose of God. They refused the baptism of John. Jesus continues saying, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. And by this generation, Jesus seems to indicate the religious leaders and lawyers. Like I said, he's pitting, Luke here in this text, pits the common people, the lowest of the low, the tax collectors and sinners. He pits them against the religious leaders. And so when Jesus says, by this generation, he means the, the, the Pharisees and the lawyers, the religious elite, the regular folks, the tax collectors, the average Joe, they saw the purpose of God in their lives and the baptism of John and now the teaching of Jesus. But the religious leaders and those who studied the law of God, those who considered themselves knowledgeable in who the Messiah was to be, they reject John and they reject Jesus. And Jesus paints a picture for us. He said, what should I compare these people to? They're like children in the marketplace calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. Jesus basically says, when it is time to dance, they refuse to dance. When it's time to be sad, they refuse to cry. In one sense, the religious leaders stand in open opposition to the wisdom of God in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That there is a time for every matter under heaven. There's a time to weep and to laugh, a time to mourn and to dance. There is a time to see John and the wisdom of God in John, and there's a time to see God's purpose for them in Jesus now. But these religious leaders, like stubborn children, cross their arms and say no. Jesus elaborates this in plainer terms. If the, the kids singing a song and dancing and crying was confusing to us, Jesus said, it's plain, let me show you. John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He says, look at how they responded to John and look at how they respond to me. There was a time to accept John and his baptism. John came rejecting bread and wine. He rejected food and drink. He was an ascetic. He abstained from things. And they saw this and said, this man must have a demon. Now it's time to accept Jesus. He has come eating and drinking. He is not abstaining from things. The pendulum has swung in the other direction and they reject John or Jesus because of these things. They reject him all the same. John had a demon because he wouldn't drink, he wouldn't eat. Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of sinners because he does these things. These people couldn't be satisfied. They reject both. 
they had expectations of what the coming of God, God's kingdom was going to be like. They studied the word. They thought they knew. They had expectations of the kind of prophet that would come before the Messiah. They had expectations of who their Messiah would be and what he would do, how he would act. And John and Jesus were not what they wanted. It's what they needed. It's what society at the time needed. It's what we need, but it's not what they wanted, and it was offensive to them. It robbed them of their joy. It robbed them of their willingness to see and submit to the purpose of God in their lives. Finally, our text this evening ends with verse 35. Jesus sums up the points he's been trying to make about the religious leaders and, and those who have accepted John's baptism and himself. And he says, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Again, Jesus says something that sounds a little out of place. Like some obscure philosophical quote we might read on the inside of a Dove chocolate wrapper or a fortune cookie. But what is Jesus saying here? Jesus basically says that the way and the wisdom of God will be evident. It will eventually be obvious. It will bear fruit, and that fruit will firm and justify it. This isn't the first time Jesus has made a statement like this. A few weeks back when he was preaching on the trees and the kind of fruit that they will bear, telling them about the health of the tree, that a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. And basically, Jesus is saying the same thing here. Wisdom is justified by all her children, by her fruit. And at the end of the day, the rejection of John and Jesus by the religious leaders will be seen as the foolishness that it is. And those who embrace the wisdom and purpose of God in their lives will see the fruit. They will experience the kingdom. They will have joy with Jesus forever. And in conclusion, how about us? Have our false expectations of God robbed us of our joy in him? Or have we seen the purpose of God for us in Christ? that Jesus is, in fact, the one who was to come and that he did, in fact, come. He was more than a good teacher, more than a prophet, more than a healer. He was the Messiah, the Son of God. And as John said, the Lamb of God who takes on our sin. And when Jesus does this, he gives us his righteousness. Jesus is the one who comes. He's the one who came, and he's the only one who can save. And like John, and like the people of Jesus' day, we don't need to look for another. We don't need to deal with this doubt. We look to the work of Christ that was accomplished in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. Lord, as we reflect on your word, Lord, I pray that out of all the words that I spoke, Lord, that you would use them, that they would take root, that something I said would be 
of benefit, of use to myself, to all of us listening here, Lord. Lord, we thank you for texts like this that can address some of the heart issues that we have. That we can be frustrated or impatient. We can be fighting doubt. Yet you answer. You approach our anxious heart and you say, be strong, fear not. For the Messiah has come. Jesus is the one who was to come. He has come. And he accomplished the work on the cross that saves us, Lord. We thank you for that. We pray that as we continue in this worship service, as we go now to communion, that we'd be reminded of that, that we'd reflect on that, Lord, that we would worship rightly, that we would find our joy in you. In Jesus' name.